Welcome to Lung Cancer Concerted, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Narjus Flores and Dr. Stephen Liu. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Narjus Flores and your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, a wrap-up of the 2022 World Conference on Lung Cancer from Vienna, Austria. I'm your co-host, Dr. Stephen Liu from Georgetown University, and we are joined by our special guest, Dr. Ben Levy from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So there was very exciting data during the presidential symposium. Uh, can you share with us some of the results of the iEmpower 110, and what do you think this is going to change practice, how you see this in the future playing out? Yeah, I think we're all familiar with the Empower 010, evaluating adjuvantizo for one year versus observation and complete re resected uh, 1B to 3A. Uh, all PD-01s were included. Uh, all patients got platinum chemotherapy. Um, we already know that the benefit of adjuvantizo was in the pd one greater than 1% in stage 2 and 3. This has created a new standard of care, and we've had some now data presented at the presidential symposium uh, looking at OS, and uh, I think this is important. We want to give treatments that improve not only uh, progression-free survival or event-free survival in the adjuvant setting, but certainly overall survival. So for the pdl one greater than 1%, we saw a hazard ratio of 0.67. I think more importantly, in the pdl one greater than 50%, uh, we saw a hazard ratio of, of 0.42. You know, not surprising here. Um, the uh, benefit and the, ha the hazard ratio for the PDL1 1, 1 to 49 was 0.93, and then the, PD and the hazard ratio for the PDL1 less than 1% was 1.21. So this is sort of similar to what we see in the advanced stage setting. We see this greater benefit. PDL1 seems to enrich for better outcomes. Uh, these numbers that I'm giving you are excluding EGFR now, but I do think that this will be practice changing in a lot of ways. I think that this solidifies atezolizumab as a bona fide therapeutic option in the adjuvant setting for the PDL1 greater than 50%. I think the jury's still out in the 1 to 49s. I can't say that I would completely abandon it uh, despite the hazard ratio being 0.93. Maybe for a patient with a higher stage, I would give it certainly practice changing. Uh, and and we'll, I think there'll be a little bit more uptake of this uh, therapy specifically for the PDL1 greater than 50%. So, Ben, a question about that. Do you think, based on the results for the EGFR all positive patients, atisulzumab should now be recommended in the adjuvant setting? Yeah, I think that, you know, like other uh, lessons we've learned in advanced stage setting in EGFR now, I don't think there's a real benefit in that patient population. And this is really underscores the importance of testing up front, right? In the surgical specimen or the biopsy, we need to know those results. There doesn't seem to be a benefit in the adjuvant setting with immunotherapy, uh, kind of mirroring our experience with single agent IO in the stage four setting. And I think it's important too, because we're having new adjuvant trials. We're going to talk a little bit and shortly, but is testing this sooner, the better. Yeah. We agree with this. I would agree. I think it's going to be a little bit more complicated in the new adjuvant setting because it's go time with chemo IO before surgery. We need to know that data uh, information before we get started. So, but nevertheless, it's, it's important to have that testing perioperatively, either before you deliver chemo IO or, you know, getting surgery and getting the chemo IO afterwards sequentially. Uh, this, again, underscores the importance of genomic interrogation of the tissue. 
These data need a little more time to mature, we know. I mean, yeah. the, in the greater than or equal to 1%, we saw that hazard ratio uh, wasn't quite statistically significant. That's different from saying it's a negative trial. This is sort of an event-driven analysis, and so it needs a little bit of time to mature. I suspect that we'll see those trends continue and it will be positive. But you're right. For me, it it's solidifies the use of adjuvant Tesla for pdl one high. For pdl one low, I do think that there's some debate and some room for discussion. Now, you mentioned the neoadjuvant setting. That's really what we're going to be talking about over the next few years is sort of a rank and file between adjuvant and neoadjuvant approaches and approaches that combine the two. We saw some pretty impressive data uh, from, from our colleagues in Spain, the DEEM-2. Um, Narjus, do you want to walk us through a little bit of what they showed? Yes, yeah, so the Nadine 2 study is a phase 2 randomized study that compared nivolumab versus nivolumab plus chemotherapy in patients with stage 3A and 3B. And they presented overall survival data with a hazard ratio of 0.40. And they show a difference in progression-free survival uh, or a hazard ratio of 0.48. And what we saw, this is a 24-month follow-up is that the progression-free survival was 89% versus 61% in the control arm. And, you know, this is more mature data that I empower 0110 when it comes to overall survival data. But it brings attention about the importance of histologic confirmation of N2 disease. And this was a requirement for the Nadine 2 study. And I think sometimes, you know, we're not clear about how to fully stage but with the addition of neoadjuvant therapy, very good staging and multidisciplinary approach is necessary. So all patients in the Nadine 2 study were evaluated by a multidisciplinary team, including surgeons, pulmonologists, radiologists, nuclear medicine, of course, the medical oncologists. How do you put this um, uh, up to Checkmate 816? That's our now currently approved regimen in the U.S. These are pretty similar findings, right? Well, with Checkmate, we have earlier stage. You know, they included patients with 1B, um, which Nadine only included patients with more locally advanced disease. We do have overall survival data with Nadine. We, we don't have for Checkmate 816 yet. Um, I, I think they're both regimens that use nivolumab plus chemotherapy. So I think it spans on the knowledge that we have. But it brings attention about like they discussed in the presidential session, mentioned it, the standard of care is still radiation plus chemotherapy. And I would love to hear the two of you input about those particular, particular patients. Yeah, I, I'll, I just start with, with some high-level overview. And you mentioned this. This is a multidisciplinary effort and sort of reinforces the message that it takes a village to treat these patients. Uh, we have to work in a multidisciplinary fashion. Uh, that's the, the first point I want to make. Um, you know, this, again, is very similar to what we saw with 816. Who would have thought that we would be talking about surgery in any way, shape, or form for stage 3 lung cancer five years ago? Uh, pretty remarkable to see that type of hazard ratio from Nadine 2 recapitulating in some ways the trends we saw in Checkmate 816. I think what will be really important, and this is something that's probably not discussed, you know, we see a five-year overall survival, per, the percentage of patients alive in the Pacific study of, of 40%. And it'll be interesting to see what we see for stage three at five years in this setting, too, and whether surgery should really be entered into the calculus of the treatment paradigm for these patients. But this is exciting. This is, I mean, this is practice changing, and this is going to take a lot of effort from our surgeons, our pathologists, our radiation oncologists, our pulmonologists, 
to really come together to make these treatment decisions for these types of patients. Yeah, it's, it's communication here. And you know, we know that these are really two different populations. I think we all know stage three is incredibly heterogeneous. And we have to make that early distinction between a resectable stage three and an unresectable stage three. And a resectable stage three, I think the data based on the DEEM-2, based on Checkmate one six right now is compelling and I think even overwhelming. And for unresectable stage three, really we, we shouldn't be trying to use these regimens to convert unresectable to resectable. We don't know the outcome of that. I, I think that would be a great study to do. I look forward to that data. It's a challenging study. Um, it's a necessary one. Right now, though, up front as a team, we need to sort of meet and make those decisions. And that's why you know, meeting like World Lung is so great to have these discussions because it truly is an interdisciplinary meeting, a global meeting, everyone with different perspectives bringing their own things to the table. But these are discussions that, that we have to have. I mean, these can't be optional anymore, right? And some important point is that the study showed that the additional neoadjuvant therapy did not affect the feasibility of the surgery. And that was a concern that our surgeons and myself have, and patients as well. Patients are always worried if anything we take the surgery out of the table. And the study did not show that that would affect the feasibility of the study. As we talk to surgery, this is a great transition to another important study of lower versus lower resection. Steve, can you tell us a little bit about this, the study and the findings? We've been waiting for this study for quite a while, and Dr. Altorki presented in the presidential CALGB 140503. This is a, a U.S. NCI Alliance study. It's a phase three randomized trial that compares lobectomy and sublobar resection for small cancers. It really is uh, strictly limited to stage T1A N0. That's no greater than two centimeters. Uh, overall. And patients were just randomized to receive a standard anatomic resection, which is a lobectomy, or a uh, sublobar resection, which would be either a segmentectomy or even a wedge resection. Uh, and really, the parenchymal sparing approaches are designed to sort of preserve lung function going forward. And it's pretty obvious that that, that could improve quality of life, that that could reduce morbidity uh, going forward. Uh, the concern, though, was that with less surgery, would we have worse outcomes? And, and they did not. We saw no difference in disease-free survival. It was really a non-inferior approach. And for an early stage 1A, I think this is potentially practice changing, really reinforcing what was seen a little while ago with the Japanese study. I think this is particularly relevant because we're expecting to see more early stage lung cancer with the integration of CT screening in more and more patients. And so to me, this, this would be practice changing to my surgical colleagues, and I'll be sure that we go through and pull up the virtual library and watch these presentations maybe in our tumor board and make sure that everyone in our group is sort of aware of these findings. Yeah, I would just like to say that, you know, how many times have we been in tumor board where there's been this discussion between the surgeons whether a wedge or segmentectomy can be done versus lobectomy? And I think this is emblematic of what we're heading lung cancer, right? We're improving outcomes or making them no worse. And at the same time, potentially sparing morbidity. And this is kind of what we're doing in the stage four setting as well. And, and I think it's really important to have these kinds of studies to solidify good care with less morbidity and potentially less morbidity and better quality of life. So this, is, this was exciting to see. And I think it's important this is linked to a study that was presented the day before we also discussed in the podcast by Dr. Yan. And it's the metachronous malignancies, lung cancer. They have an increase 1% to 2% per year. So preserving parenchymal tissue, particularly when we're seeing that patients may have high risk for a second lung cancer, could be relatively important. Yeah. 
Uh, stage 1A lung cancers, we expect to see more of these. We now know DFS, OS, no better with a sublobar resection. But one important tiny detail that Dr. Altorki noted was looking at disease recurrence, we're comparing low bar to sublobar, not really seeing much difference there. But if we look at the absolute recurrence rate, even for such a small cancer, uh, 16, 17% of patients recurred with distant metastases, mm -hmm. sort of reinforcing that even in earlier stages, sometimes lung cancer is a more systemic disease. And one more point I want to make about this study, which is that every patient was properly staged with a PET. Uh, so there was clinical, uh, you know, real good clinical staging. And there was this question afterwards about, well, is this generalizable? And this was done at community centers across the country. So it is generalizable, at least in the U.S. So it's important that these patients get properly staged with a PET. And that was done here. And I think that helped contribute to the study outcomes. Screening is such an important part. Finding these cancers earlier gives our patients greater chances of better outcomes. But it, we know now that it really is important to link CT screening, which is done primarily in patients with smoking history, to smoking cessation programs. And one of the plenaries really focused on a different type of intervention. Narjus, do you want to tell our listeners what that was about? Yes. Yeah, so we're talking about the Yorkshire Enhanced Stop Smoking Study. So this is adding co-located personalized stop smoking support to a lung cancer screening program. These, they screened over 2,000 patients. This was presented by Dr. Murray. They have two cohorts that were, had the same care at four weeks and they were followed subsequently at three and 12 months for follow regarding quit rates. One third of the total participants quit at three months. But what really brought I think my attention to this is that the participants were given a booklet that included images of their lungs for the lung cancer screening showing the damage that the cigarette was causing in their lungs, their pictures, compared to a normal lung. And they also were showing coronary calcification, their own heart compared to a normal heart. So we always say that an image is worth a thousand words. And I think it made a big impact in these patients. Something that also that Dr. Murray mentioned in her presentations were gender differences. So they have gender difference in a smoking rate and the intervention appeared to be more successful, uh, but women were less likely to quit in general. So when we talk about this work conference, I really like that we address the entire continuum of cancer care from smoking sensation, we talk about salt lower resections, neoadjuvant therapy, adjuvant therapy. And this study, the YES study, the cost was less than 500 pounds for patient for quitting smoking. We often believe we need these multi-million interventions, but we are talking about less than 500 pounds. I think the, the quit rates um, that we saw were pretty impressive, north of 30%, and they were, they were sustained. Um, and so you know, even though it, the impact between the two arms, the personalized versus not, didn't show as much difference as we might have wanted, uh, I really think it was an impressive effort, and, and, you know, we'll see more analyses coming out of these studies at World Lung. There was a, a lot of focus on screening, early detection. These were really robust tracts. Uh, Dr. Randy Williams, one of my colleagues from Georgetown, presented her data on a, a more aggressive uh, intervention-based therapy strategy to, to really help patients with smoking cessation. I think it really is good, I think it's refreshing to see is like focused on this aspect of, of lung cancer care and prevention. Yeah, I just want to, you know, obviously remind the, the listeners, and I think all of us know this, that still 65, 70% of patients present with advanced stage disease. 
Uh, we talk about all these great therapies with targeted therapies, immunotherapies, antibody drug conjugates, and we're moving the field forward. And by forward, meaning really trying to pick this up early on and implementing strategies to help uh, mitigate the process of moving to stage four. So I think this is where the field is heading with CT screening, dare I say, liquid analysis of certain biomarkers that may help detect patients with early stage lung cancer and smoking cessation techniques that are creative and novel uh, that can really, you know, obviously increase the rate of uh, cessation of smoking. And while our focus here has been on smoking, we are starting to look at these in non-smokers as well. Right. We're familiar with the, the study from Taiwan and how do we apply that sort of framework to a U.S.-based population. Our colleague, Dr. Elaine Shum in New York, is really looking at a similar approach of CT screening in non-smoking Asian females. And I just know this is an area that you're focused on, on, on you know, lung cancer developing in, in younger women and non-smokers. I think we need to figure out more of the biology and how we can apply early detection to, to that model. And we also talk about outdoor and indoor pollution. Um, I think we forget, you know, the exposure of our patients to outdoor pollution and indoor pollution like radon. Mm -hmm. There are risk factors that are there and we need to continue to discuss. So I think the future is bright and we are seeing so many disciplines. And that's one of the beautiful things about World Conference, that in one table you can have an epidemiologist, a smoking sensation specialist, a surgeon, a palliative care doctor, and it feels like, we're coming together. You know, most patients do present with more late-stage disease, and a lot of the presentations we saw in Vienna at WCLC 22 were focused on some of the newer therapeutics. We saw data for some of the newer targeted drugs, some of the, the bispecific uh, T-cell engager, the tarlatimab data that Dr. Haas-Borgai updated, some of the data on immunotherapy agents. W- one that I want to highlight that I thought was kind of interesting and really maybe does apply sort of more immediately was a, a presentation of pooled analysis done by Dr. Delvis Rodriguez-Abreu in Gran Canaria. Um, It looked at patients in five keynote trials, and so this was looking at pembrolizumab in patients with advanced lung cancer. In those studies, patients continued pembrolizumab for two years, and in the absence of progression uh, or toxicity, they then stopped therapy and were observed. And some of those patients would then go on, unfortunately, to develop recurrence, and then could be retreated. And in each individual study, we saw pretty variable outcomes in terms of response with that retreatment course. Again, this is in the absence of intervening therapy, uh, but what Dr. Rodriguez-Abreu presented was a pool analysis, really combining these and, and showing what were the results when we retreated with pembrolizumab. And in patients who had received first-line pembrolizumab, uh, we see that the retreatment response rate was about 20%, the disease control rate about 75%, median survival there about 28 months. It's a little lower in that cohort, too, where pembrolizumab was introduced in later lines, but that's probably going to be a less uh, relevant cohort now because we are using immunotherapy in the frontline setting. I think a lot of people have been waiting for this kind of data set because when patients do progress during that holiday, I think that it's our natural instinct to restart therapy. This tells us that we can see responses, though not everyone responds, and uh, we can see disease control but not for everyone. So I think we still have a lot of work to do in terms of the granularity, understanding who can be retreated, who can't, who should stop, and maybe who shouldn't. And I don't know if this is a problem that you encounter in your own practice, Ben. Yeah, I think, you know, I had a question, obviously, during this session. Um, it, it, it's a tough call. You know, we saw a response rate of rechallenge of around 20% in those patients who, were, who had received pembromonotherapy. And, you know, my question is, who are these patients who you feel comfortable rechallenging? Uh, who are these patients which should move on to chemotherapy? Uh, this is a tough decision. This is also medicine as an art and not a science. 
this is a lot of what we practice sometimes. We now have good data that the response rate with rechallenging, at least with single agent IO, is 20%. Um, but it's still it's a tough call for me in terms of who's going to who's going to go onto that and who's going to go in clinical trial, who's going to go to chemotherapy. So the jury's still out, and hopefully we'll gain more uh, data as more data matures. And I think that's very important because we had the two year right? And patients are sometimes anxious to stop in therapy. And I would be anxious if I have a yeah. metastatic disease. And um, we hear over and over again, some patients that don't want to stop and some patients that are okay to be off pembrolizumab. So the more data, it will enrich the conversation in the clinic with our patients. Yeah. I, I, I really like that these types of analyses are being done and some of these um, non-intuitive questions are really being asked. So a lot of great data here. I think that, you know, I want to encourage all of our listeners to go through to the virtual library. You can still register for the meeting, um, which will happen uh, virtually at this point. The platform is very user-friendly. You can download the slides. You can watch uh, the lectures and the different talks that are out there. I highly encourage anyone interested to go back, register, pull out the conferences and uh, the different talks that you're interested in. Um, uh, quite easy to use. So start off by going to IASLC.org and follow the links to WCLC 22. And as we wrap this episode, it has been great to see friends, colleagues, collaborators, patient advocates, patient activists in person. Uh, we have several meetings that happen in North America, Asia, and Latin America in the next few months. So you're welcome to join us in person as well. But we cannot forget that the next World Conference on Lung Cancer will be in Singapore, September 9 to 12, 2023. And we look forward to seeing you there. Before I let everyone go, this was our first in-person meeting in, you know, for World Lung in three years. Um, we gathered here in Vienna, Austria, some of us virtually, some in person. Ben, what, what was it like for you coming back in person? Uh, what was good about this meeting? Well, I'm a social guy, so I like being in person. Uh, this is great. Um, you know, it's a cross-fertilization of ideas, right? I mean, this is what meetings are all about, is to gain insight from other, other uh, practitioners, other medical oncologists, pulmonologists, uh, surgeons. And this is one of the means that brings everybody together. Uh, so, so this, again, reinforces the idea that it takes a village and it takes multidisciplinary care. You know, and I'm particularly honored to, to sort of gather here on your birthday uh, to really celebrate in person. Uh, it's it, just a monumentous uh, achievement. So uh, it's good to see everyone in person. It's good to get different perspectives. Uh, we haven't seen anything in a while. And, you know, a lot of it's going to come out of this meeting, not just the education, but the collaborations, uh, a lot of new studies being designed. This is really how the field moves forward. Um, and, and, and it is good to be back in person uh, and, and look forward to seeing everybody in Singapore. And so that's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Uh, be sure to tune in regularly uh, to download new episodes on Apple or SoundCloud. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.